Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. Um, I'll say this about our study in John. I think this has been some of the some of the most learning that I have done while studying to preach has been done with this this uh, exposition of John. There's so much deep theology here and so much important things that we're learning in John. I, I loved preaching Romans. I really did. But this digs so deeply into who Christ is, and we've, we've started our new Sunday School series on who is Christ. So I think that that is... An important thing for all of us, and I pray that you guys are learning as much as I am, and I hope that it's leading us all to one thing, and that is worship of the true Christ. That's what we should be desiring through learning more of Him, and I like the fact that this morning we learned who He's not in Sunday school, because that's important too, because if we've got the wrong picture of Christ, we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. We need to look at Him as He is described in Scripture. But this particular text is, should absolutely show us the importance of true worship of God. Um, we don't come to church for experiences. We don't come to church for signs and wonders. We don't come to church really for anything lifting us up. We come to church to worship. We come to church to lift up worship to the one true God. And the great thing about that is that when we do worship the one true God, we are actually getting the exact experience we need. The experience of understanding that he is so much greater than us, that he has done so much to redeem and save us, and that he is the most important thing. So, I want to dig into the text. This is a... Really, really fun text. I really enjoy this text. So, now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God, John 2, 12 through 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these, for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture 
and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he did no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for that it is inspired and infallible and inerrant. God, we thank you for the men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words so that we may know who Christ truly is. That we have no further to look than in the word of God to see you and to see what you have said and to see who Christ is and to see what redemption looks like and what salvation is and what it means. God, we ask that you would remove the veil that we may clearly see what is revealed to us in this scripture particularly. God, that we would desire worship and higher worship. God, for we know a higher view of you will lead us to higher worship. Holy Spirit, illuminate the path that we may walk it without stumbling and understand and retain what you have said here. We thank you in Christ's name. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. So, let's explore this verse by verse, okay? I want us to, to kind of get back to that on this section of it because there's so much that we can learn as we go verse by verse about what this truly is. Um, the reason that it's so important to do that here is because I have heard this set of text, which is a, a, a narrative of the first cleansing of the temple, okay? It comes at the beginning of John and at the end of some of the other ones. Why? Because he cleansed the temple twice. That's why. But I've heard it preached in several different ways that kind of fit a certain narrative for a certain kind of church experience. And we don't want to do that. We need to see exactly what it says because if we look at it, we can see the historical context, which is necessary for us to tell what we need to know about why this actually happened. And I think we also learn a few practical concepts that we're going to be able to apply in this, which is also important. So let's start with verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So, what made Jesus angry? There's a lot of people who would say things here and would plug in their narrative things that are not substantiated by the text and things that are not substantiated by the history of what's going on here. We need to stick to the scripture in the context, okay? We need to use a biblical hermeneutic. What does that mean? As we all say in our head, Herman who? Um, a biblical hermeneutic means that the, the, the historical context is important and that the scripture is interpreting the scripture. Not us plugging in these narratives. Because, look, it never says here that they were selling sickly and poor-looking animals 
or animals that didn't fit the sacrifice. It never says that. Yet I've heard that preached. But it never says that. It wasn't that the people who were bringing their own animals were not allowed to bring those animals in for the sacrifice. It never says that. These are made-up facts to push a certain agenda to get a reaction that the speaker wanted. But they're not true. The money changers were not stealing money from unsuspecting people. Okay? That's stuff that I've heard preached. And some of you may be in the same boat as me. You've heard that preached. That that's what was happening. They were giving sickly animals or not letting the people, taking away the people's animals and making them buy these animals instead. Or the money changers were stealing their money and giving them junk money back. That's not what was happening here. Okay? So let's, let's talk about what was really happening. Historically, what was happening. These people, get ready, you've probably never heard this. These people were actually selling things and providing services that were helpful. People who traveled a long way to the Passover in Jerusalem to come to the temple could not bring their animals with them easily. So that's why the animals were being sold. And also, the temple tax. Did y'all know about the temple tax? Everybody who came in the temple had to pay a tax. Well, the tax was required a certain coin. This certain coin had to be this ultra-pure silver. It couldn't be any coin of the realm. And there were a lot of them because this is the Roman Empire. So they allowed all kinds of money to be used within these different communities. But it required a pure, very pure silver coin, which these people did not have. So they sold animals for the people who could not bring their animals because it was a long distance of travel. And they sold these pure silver coins. They exchanged any coin of the realm for these pure silver coins and guess what the rate was? It was 13%. That was high, but that was the cost of the service. These were helpful services for those who were provided, who were traveling. So we don't try and find some narrative in this part of it, okay? We're not trying to make these people who are doing these things into the evil people that I've seen them made into. That's not what the issue is. The issue was where the commerce was taking place. That's the problem. They had moved from another place in Jerusalem. Historically, they had been doing it in this other place in Jerusalem. But it wasn't contained within the temple grounds. And they had moved that into the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And Sproul, in his commentary, he does a wonderful job of painting that historical picture that we all need to see in this. Because they were doing this inside the temple, Jesus had a very specific reaction. 
Let's read verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus made a whip. And how many of you have heard about how he beat them people out of that temple? Y'all have heard that, right? I'm not, the only, I'm not standing up here alone, am I? We heard that they, he would beat these people out. No. What do you use a whip for when there's animals? To drive the animals out. Guess what he was using the whip for? Because it says he drove them out with the sheep and the oxen. So he's driving out the animals. And he flipped the table of the money changers. He tells them clearly that what they are doing is not evil because they're stealing from the people here. He is he's telling them, it's not meant to happen in my father's house. Their actions, what they were doing, was not meant for his father's house. And the disciples kind of reveal the reason for his reaction being kind of harsh. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written back in Psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had zeal for the house of God. He had a strong love and reverence for the house of God. And that brings us to the first point that we need to stop and hover a minute and discuss, okay? Listen to me clearly. Don't read anything into what I'm saying here. Let's look at the text. Christ disproves, he disapproves of irreverent behavior in the house of God. Christ disapproves of irreverent behavior in the house of God. Let's explore and define this more clearly. Because the legalist will take this idea and twist it and make laws where there are no laws. Okay? We're not going to do that. We're going to use the word as our point. I do not believe for a second that this means dress standards. I do not for a second believe that this means kids crying in the sanctuary or kids talking in the sanctuary. I don't believe that for a second. Those are ideas of men that have been twisted to bring people under a law that there is not made in Scripture. I want to read to you a quote from R.C. Sproul on page 29 of his commentary. It says, and he's speaking of, of what Jesus is encountering here. He says, The sacred grounds that had been set apart for worship had become chaotic. Yes, people's needs were being met. I'm sure the temple authorities were saying, we're just trying to be relevant. We're being seeker sensitive for those who can't bring their lambs from home and who need their money exchanged. But in their efforts to make these procedures easy and convenient for the people, they had impacted the people's ability to worship. That 
was the problem. It wasn't even necessarily about the building itself. It was about what the temple was meant for. Christ had a zeal for God's house because Christ had a zeal for worship. These merchants and bankers had taken over an area that was meant for the worship of the triune God and turned it into a marketplace. Let us be cautious what we do in our churches. Let me say that. Why had they done this? Why had they, had they taken the court of the Gentiles, a place where the Gentiles could come and bring a sacrifice and worship? They weren't allowed past that point. They couldn't even get in there because it was full of animals and money changers, a place where they should be able to worship. They're hearing the bleeding of goats and the chirping of pigeons. Why had they done it? There is no clear outline in Scripture. Sproul speculates, and I kind of tend to go with him in this, that this was done to appeal to the people, to meet some of those felt needs, to be appealing to the masses. But I think if we look and we see the overall theme of just what we've read so far and dug into so far, I think Jesus was clear in this text that the place of worship is no place for the inventions of man to come in and help God. He does not need us to help him to be more relevant and appealing. The God who created all things is always relevant. Why? Because he sustains and he upholds everything. So he's always relevant. And what he thinks is always relevant. And he is appealing because guess who it is who draws people to him? Himself, God the Holy Spirit, is at work changing the hearts of men. So he's appealing to people all the time. Even the gospel we preach doesn't need our help. It's the power of God unto salvation. So we see here that, that this invention of men, of let's, let's bring it all in here so it's easier for everybody. Everybody will love that. That'll get more people in, right? Let's just bring it all in the sanctuary. Let's bring it all to the place where the Gentiles would be because, you know, the Gentiles aren't that important anyway, right? They're not, they're not God's chosen people. We are. Let's just bring it all in so they can get what they want here at the place. And maybe that'll bring more people in, right? As an overall thing, we need to put in our heads clearly, God doesn't need our help inventing what church should be. And on an individual note, I think we need to get to, to another point of this. We don't need to come into worship with a divided mind, okay? We can't come and worship while we're focused on temporal things and worldly possessions. That's why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous because it takes our minds from the worship of the one true God and puts it on things like uh, rich. I want to get rich. 
I want God to provide everything that I want in this life. Because he promised me an abundant life, right? Or I want to get, I want to get healed because that's, that's, or I want to do miracles. All these things take your mind from the worship of the one true God. And it's absolutely irreverent to God to do those things. We must approach God in serious worship because he is worthy of our serious worship. A worship focused on him. How serious must we be? I think it's very clear in Ecclesiastes how serious we must be. When this warning is given, it needs to be heeded. <laughs> Listen to this. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let's take heed of this. That first sentence is pretty serious. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And this ties directly back to reverence for a God who is holy. In his house, we worship him. Church is not a playground to have fun in. It's a place to lift up loving adoration to the one who has made the way to save us. We don't need light shows and, and, and mini concerts. We don't need big comfy couches or uh, dance programs. We don't need any of that. We need to lift up worship to the one true God. That's what we need. The house of God is a place where that is what should happen. We can't carry all of our worldliness and temporal desires and lift up true worship. But let me just draw a distinction here, okay? We do bring our needs to Him in prayer. Not our felt needs, okay? Because some people's felt needs is, man, I need a good nursery program so I don't have to have my kids, right? That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about needs. I'm talking about serious needs of our heart, of our mind, the need for God to help. We've turned our felt needs into that. You see, because when we bring our needs to God in prayer, do you know what that is to Him? That's worship. How is it worship? Because we are saying, God, I trust you. Your will be done. Whatsoever you have ordained, I trust that that's what's going to happen. The thing is, we don't focus all of our wants and desires as our focus and not focus on the Savior of the universe. Christ is our focus. I've noticed with Brother Garrett's prayers for our Sunday school, he's, 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 he's really been trying to bring us into a focus on Christ and his prayers. And that's where we need to be. 
in our lives, a focus on Christ as we come to worship Him. Leviticus 19.30 says, and this is God speaking, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reference my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Why do we reverence the sanctuary? Here's the thing. This is kind of called the sanctuary because it's where we come for the main service that we do of worship. The sanctuary is where God is receiving worship. That's what the sanctuary is. He needs to be reverenced as holy in that place because He is the sovereign Lord of all the universe, okay? He takes worship seriously. He receives it seriously. And we should give it to Him seriously. So, does this mean that we're stoic and unemotional? I would say emphatically to you, absolutely not. No, we are not stoic and unemotional when we approach God in worship. The worship of Christ and seeing what He has done should cause something in us that is more emotional than anything else in our lives. That's why we don't unplug our emotions from our mind. Just like we don't unplug our mind from our emotions, we know that worship of God is intellectual and it is emotional. We must take seriously, though, that the house of God is a place of worship and not a place for entertainment or anything else worldly. The worldly systems don't belong in here. We must revere and lift up worship to our holy God because He alone is worthy of it. Now, after He cleanses a temple of distractions to the true, ordered worship of God, here come the Jews. Let's read verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for you to do these things? They want a sign. Shocker. That seems to be all they ever want in the Gospels. They want a sign. Show us how. Prove to us that, that, that you're someone of authority to do these things. He just turned water into wine, guys. And the same thought of I need a sign continues today. I watched a uh, debate uh, between Jeff Durbin and James White with a, a rabid atheist. I mean rabid. His idea of debate was to take a cup of antifreeze and scream at them, show me, drink it, show me, turn it to water, drink it. The agnostic and the atheist would say, show me, if God would do something right in front of them, they claim they would believe. Scripture tells us different, though. I think we clearly see that what needs to happen is a change of heart. The Holy Spirit must change your heart. That's how, that's how you'll believe. 
Within the visible church, there are entire sects of people only seeking after signs. Jesus is clear about these types of folks. And in order to see that, let's look at another interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 1 through 4, it says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him, guess what they asked him? To show them a sign from heaven. Shocker. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So once again, what are they seeking? Show us a sign. Prove it. Show us something. Let's look closely at that verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Jesus tells them in this case, much the same as the Jews who confronted him in the temple. Right? Let's read verses 19 through 22 when it says, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Jesus tells them, that the sign that he's going to give to prove to them that he has the authority to do this is his resurrection. He tells both groups that same thing in his own way. Look what he said in Matthew. He said, the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah. How many days was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Three. Did you know I don't know if you know this. Most Old Testament scholars believe that this was actually a representation of death. That Jonah died for three days in the in, in the belly of the fish and was spit out alive on the on the beach. That's what most New Testament and most Old Testament scholars believe about that. It was a parallel. Jesus, Jesus is basically saying here, you want a sign. I'll show you a sign. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. We know that clearly. Physiologically, we know he died. They put it in the scripture to make sure. Did they know what that meant? That the blood and water flowed out? That the, that the heart was completely surrounded by fluid? And that as the spear went in, it, that, that busted that sack and it showed, yeah, he's dead. He's absolutely dead. He he was crucified, died, and was buried. That's our creed, right? And on the third day, 
he rose again. If we need signs in our lives to show us who Christ is and that we need to lift up worship to him, all the sign we need is to look at an empty tomb. That's the sign. The Jews heard what he had said and looked at this still unfinished building that they had been building for 46 years and they missed it completely. Jesus himself was the temple. And three days later, the temple rose again. In AD 70, that building that they were so fond of that they couldn't see anything else because they loved that building so much, loved it so much they brought animals in it. In AD 70, that building that they were standing in was flattened. And you know what? It has never been rebuilt. But Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. I want to read to you another quote from Sproul. He said, on page 31 of his commentary, he said, By raising Christ from the grave, God established his church. Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. We come to the real Christ to worship. And as a final admonishment to those who seek signs, let's look at the ending of one of my favorite sermons in all of Scripture. Paul at the Areopagus with all those smart dudes who had made all these awesome statues and were so sure that they had to make a statue to an unknown God just in case the ones that they were worshiping wasn't the right one. They wanted to have that one there as a cover. Acts 17, 30 through 31, it says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And this he has given, and this, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know who to worship? Because God raised him from the dead. You need a sign? Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. He is alive. There's your sign. We need nothing else. Notice the effect we see. When Christ arose, the disciples remembered what he said. Hey, do you remember when he was yelling at all the, all the Jewish guys and, and, and beat all those animals, got them out of there and flipped those tables? you remember what he said? He said that he would, you could tear down this temple and he would raise it three days later. The disciples remembered. And what did they do? They didn't continue to seek new signs and wonders to understand that, that God was real. It says that they believed. Because they had heard what Jesus said. They saw what the scripture said. And what Jesus had said was enough. And they saw the resurrection. And that was all the sign they needed. John makes another point about the followers of signs in this text too. That we need to look at. Verse 23 through 25 it says. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. People began to follow Jesus because of the signs. Modern day parallel, there's a lot of people who say they're Jesus followers, but that's just because they're following the stuff that's happening in these buildings that call themselves churches. Yet, what does it say about Jesus? Jesus knew their hearts. What did he know about their hearts? That they were deceitfully wicked. These people were not drawn by the words of Christ. They were drawn by what they could get. I don't know if you've ever kind of followed the narrative when it talks about the feeding of the 5,000 and how these multitudes began following after the feeding of the 5,000. Do you know why a lot of those people were following after the feeding of the 5,000? Free food. That's why they were following. They were seeking another miraculous meal. And these people who started to follow Jesus because of the signs were a lot like those people. And what does it say about how Jesus reacted to them? It says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That's interesting. If I was to try and decipher what that means for us so that we can kind of understand what that means that he did not entrust himself to them, maybe it means that he didn't necessarily invest his ministry efforts into them because they were just following for the stuff, the signs. It's not clear in Scripture, but maybe that's what it is. I would speculate that those sign-seeking followers were probably among those who left Jesus and no longer followed him just a few chapters later in John 6 when it says, and many left him. And he looked at his disciples and said, you, gonna, you, gonna, you guys gone too? What, you going to leave? And what they say? Where else are we going to go? Did they say, where else are we going to go? You do such cool stuff. The signs are awesome. No. They said, you have the words of life. They didn't care about the signs. They cared about the Savior. He spoke the life into their, into their, into their hearts. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows your heart. <clears throat> Guess what? That's a pretty scary thing for those who are not in Christ. He knows that that heart is deceitfully wicked and evil. He knows it's it's dead. But for those of us who are in Christ, that's a great place to be. Do you know why? Because the heart he knows is the one that he gave you. The one that's alive, that's beating. We must seek, not signs, we must seek Christ. What he has said. 
The only sign we need is the resurrection. Because if he is raised, like we believe, we have been raised from death to life. We've been raised from the death in our sins through him. If he's alive, we're alive. These followers who only want signs are just like what it says in Scripture. They're adulterous. Their master is not God. Their master is their belly. They have another lover who is not Christ. They followed signs. When we do that, hear me clearly. When you do that, when you follow after the signs and the stuff, you are following after a different gospel. You are believing the wrong gospel. You are serving, like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, you are serving the wrong Christ when you're doing that. So, like I said, this text is awesome. It talks so much about the, the worship of God and the worship of Christ and how important that is. Throw the signs out the door. You want, you want, to, know, you want to know the truth about signs and wonders and miracles? Hear me clearly. Does God still work miracles? Yes. But He does it in His will. He does it in His will. So what should we take from this? I would say first, <clears throat> the church is not to be marked by the world. Our church is not to be marked by culture and fads and things that are cool outside of this building. We worship God in the way that He has ordained in Scripture. God takes worship extremely seriously. How do I know this? Well, there's two guys in Scripture I know you could ask immediately. And they would tell you God takes worship seriously. Nadab and Abihu burnt to a crisp because they lifted up strange fire that God had not ordained. That's why I know that God takes worship seriously. Secondly, leave all the temporal things behind when you walk into the house of God. This is a place to fellowship with the saints and lift up worship. God is the audience of our worship and He is worthy of our worship. From beginning to end, we need to desire to worship God when we come in this place. We're not here to have a bunch of felt needs met. We're not here to win contests. We're not here to, to get rid of our kids for an hour and a half. We are here to lift up worship to the one true God. That's why we're here. Three. We don't need signs and wonders. If God wants to work a sign or do a wonder, that's His prerogative. We don't need it. Why? Because the sign for us is that we have a resurrected Savior. God still does great works as He wills it. And if He does that, we are ever thankful and so blessed that we are a part of it. But our sign is the resurrection. We know that we have been brought from death to life in Him.
that's what's real for us. And last of all, it really boils down to one major point. The only gospel that we need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need the other stuff. We don't need any of the stuff. Why? Because guess what? The stuff will fade away. The bank account will empty out. The body will wear down and get sick again. The emotional experience will wear out, will wear away. I know because I used to have them and within a week they were gone. The one thing that will not change is that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life. He died. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath because he was bearing all of our sins upon his body. And he died bodily. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, he arose from the grave. And he now lives forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father, making his enemies his footstool. That is real. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we are your children if we are in Christ, that we can lift up worship to you, that we can pour out our needs before you, knowing that you hear our prayers, and God, knowing that you are the one who does great things, and it has no bearing upon you how much zeal we have or how much we yell forward or speak it into existence, God, we know that you do the work, God, it's you and not us. God, the only sign that we need is the sign of the resurrection, knowing that that tomb is empty and it is forever split time. Help us to be marked by that in our lives. Help us to seek after that power over any other power, the power of the resurrection, which raised Christ from the dead and now it raises us from death to life, from sin to sons. We thank you. Father, we pray that those who are not in Christ would hear this and be cut to the heart. They must turn to you. They must run to you and see the empty tomb and know that they have redemption in Christ. Sinner, you must repent and trust in Christ for your, the salvation of your soul. You must turn to him. He is your only hope. Turn and run to him. God, we are thankful. We ask that you would bless each one here. And God, thank you so much for Christ and what he has done to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.